Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the OIG Roundtable. The band's all here. I'd like to wish everybody a belated Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day was Wednesday. Here's my Valentine's cup for all of you, if you could see it. There we go. Happy Valentine's Day to everybody, belated. Here with the whole band, Wade McFall, retired assistant special agent in charge from the LA field office, now a member of our SIU team, Jason Eisengrine, retired senior executive from HHSOIG, the retired Western UPIC director and our special director in charge of special projects, and Matt Kachansky, Jason's counterpart from HHSOIG, Northeast UPIC retired director, and our senior manager over on our SIU investigative team. And we're here to talk today about, and so there's been an article in the news that's been really circulating around. There's been a whole bunch of them over the past week regarding what has now been identified as about a $2 billion, with a B, fraud scheme involving urinary catheters. Urinary catheters, by the way, reimburse at about $8 each. But for those of you that deal in this space, in the durable medical equipment space, particularly with catheters, you're purchasing them in bulk, right? You're not just buying one at a time. You're buying dozens, if not hundreds, um, because they need to be changed frequently so that you don't get urinary tract infections and the like. And so for those of you that haven't been keeping up with this, uh, it's, a, it's a, a scheme that started to develop in late of 2022 and really hit its... Uh, its peak in 2023. It involves about seven or eight different uh, DME companies uh, in, of course, uh, Texas, New York, Connecticut, and Florida, among other places. There's about seven different companies that are involved in this, um, and the fraud appears to be very pervasive. Um, it looks like the companies, uh, they started with about 14 patients and are now at about 406,000 patients. And the spike in reimbursements um, really took an astronomical uh, growth, and no one saw it. Uh, everybody was asleep at the wheel, proverbial wheel. Uh, the data didn't catch it because it was a bunch of different companies. And, um, you know, the big takeaway is that one of the companies that's kind of at the forefront is a company based out of Texas that was known as Pretty in Pink. It was a DME company that was very, very specific to providing only um, prosthetics for breast cancer survivors, uh, wigs, and um, uh, post-double mastectomy and things of that sort, prosthesis um, for breast cancer survivors. So we're talking about very niche. They didn't do catheters or any of that. Uh, the woman that owned the company sold it for $50,000 to get out, and she has been kind of at the forefront of this because her name still appears on a bunch of the documents. So um, this is something that's a little, um, it's a little insane because we're talking about $2 billion in a little over a year's time. And the craziest part is the way that this was brought to light to the government, according to all of the newspaper articles. By the way, the government is neither confirming nor denying the existence of any investigations involving this. But um, it appears that a national association of um, ACOs came and brought this to the government's attention because doctors' names were on orders for catheters that they weren't ordering. And so a third party organization is the one that actually discovered this as a problem. So, Wade, I want to start with you because, you know, from an investigative perspective, <clears throat> you know, with the with the increased amount of data analytics that's out there, and we always talk about analytics and the importance of vetting your cases and whether or not data is going to give you actionable intelligence and all of that, <clears throat> we're really talking about spikes nationally 
in a six or seven state area, but obviously it's going to have, you know, $2 billion on catheters over the course of a little over a year at $8 a piece. Um, with someone mapping at the wheel, like, you know, it's just a bizarre thing, but it's like from an investigative perspective, like all of the roads are pointing to something wrong here and the ball being dropped. But from from at least the investigative perspective, uh, it, it's a little mind boggling, right? I'm, I'm never at a loss for words, but I'm kind of at a loss for words. Yeah, I, I think at first glance, it's, you know, it, it seems like this really should have been caught on some, you know, automated flag in the system. I mean, if you, you talk about a spike uh, going from 14 uh, Medicare beneficiaries to 400,000 within a year, I mean, that, that's about as much of a spike as you can get. But as we discussed earlier before we came on the call, you divide that up by seven companies and it's not quite as obvious. It's a little bit more likely to fly beneath the radar, um, but but still uh, there's there's really some, I, I would have think some of the algorithms would have caught that kind of an increase um, in just a one year period. A couple of other things that I think are important in this case is the way that um, the company went from the original owners to seven maybe uh, related, but possibly seemingly unrelated in the system by doing a change of ownership. And when uh, somebody does that, they, they're the owner of the company and they're going to sell it to somebody else. They simply do a change of ownership. I think it's a CMS 855B or something like that, the, a form. And it basically um, transfers the company to a new owner. And that includes not only the Medicare um id number but also the provider agreements and various forms that were filled out when the original owner got the uh, business together so that's always been an issue uh back in los angeles we saw that all the time with dme companies where somebody would sell the company they do a change of ownership and there's really it really circumvents the kind of the vetting that should normally be happening um and it's it's there's just been issues. I don't have the answers to what to do, but I think that that really needs to be changed. That's that's a glaring hole in the system, the, the whole change of ownership system where they don't have to apply for their own numbers. So that's one area um, you talked about. We talked about the spike in the billings. That That's another area that's that obviously, you know, has to be looked at. But one of the third areas that I think really could have helped in this we talk about it all the time. We talk to the um, different organizations that talk to the Medicare beneficiaries, but there was at least one that I think it was a, a Medicare beneficiary who received or was per um, Medicare number was billed for like $12,000 in catheters and she never received any. She didn't need them, never received them. And this goes back to something we've always hounded on it. If beneficiaries would read their um, EOB, their explanation of benefits, she would have seen that she was being billed these probably on a monthly basis for, you know, over a year or whatever. But that's a simple call to, you know, the OIG hotline or the, you know, various places they could report that. And if, and if beneficiaries would do a better job at looking at their EOBs and if they see something that they're not receiving that they're being billed for, they need to report that. And that's a good source for, the OIG or whoever's investigating it to kind of start looking into things. So that that's really the two 
but really three areas that I see being an issue here. The change of ownership, the the spike in the billing, which seems obvious, but when it's spread out between different companies, it, it could fly under the radar. But one of the simplest issues is to have beneficiaries check their EOB, and that, that could be a great source right. of early on information for investigators. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, you're bringing up a great point, which is this whole thing, the change of ownership, which they call in the industry the chow, right? So what happens is, uh, for those that aren't intimately familiar with this, there's a there's a platform that CMS operates through, uh, you know, through a contractor called Pecos, which is a, a provider ownership change, uh, Provider enrollment, provider enrollment, enrollment change, change of ownership system, P-E-C-O-S, provider enrollment change of ownership system. And what that's supposed to do is when a, when a new owner comes in after they've been enrolled, you go in through Pecos, you do this, but you've, you've identified the loophole of the loopholes in Pecos in change of ownership is that when the chow occurs, the things that existed for the company continue on. So if a practice had a business had contracts, those contracts continue to evergreen. They live on. They just renew versus if you were starting a new company, you have to go and get credentialed and do all of that, get a network and all of that. And that is right. That's obviously the, the issue. And if you just do those change of ownerships, you kind of get to circumvent all of that. There's another platform that exists called APS, Advanced Provider Screening, which is also also a vendor-based platform that CMS pays for. And, you know, between uh, Pecos and APS, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars potentially in administrative costs and operating costs for these on systems that should be working properly, right? And so when you talk about APS, it's supposed to be able to root out and ferret out some of these things that, that are out there that exist. And, and wait, the, the one thing that you really bring up, which has been something that we have all been talking about collectively behind the scenes forever and a day, is that when when uh, members and beneficiaries of plans get their explanation of benefit forms, they're not easy to read. They're not in simple English for people to understand. You know, this is We do this for a living, and those forms are complicated for us to read and understand. Mm. How is someone going to understand a form that comes in the mail that isn't in simple English? Uh, you know, I've always thought the simplest thing is if someone got a an, uh, a product, a DME product, what would be the difficulty in putting a representative photo with the explanation of benefit to say when you get that explanation of benefit to say, hey, you know, by the way, you know, Mr. McFall, your Medicare paid for this device this item, whatever it is, <clears throat> is this what you got, right? You could see that, remember in the, in the, in the days of the wheelchair fraud schemes, when people were getting scooters, but they were paying, you know, but Medicare was being billed for very expensive power wheelchairs, right? Like something like that. But it just seems that you've got the, the prospect of being able to make things a little bit, a little bit easier. You know, the other thing I will say, <clears throat> and, and Matt, I want to go to you on this one, because it's, it really <clears throat> has to do with the quality of the information that comes in on a complaint, but also the quality of your investigators, right? I remember uh, dealing with a case that involved um, um, diabetic testing supplies. And, you know, I was the duty agent one day in New Jersey. And in one day, I think I got five or eight complaints from different people around the country, all tying back to the exact same company. And when I went into the OIG's deposit uh, re repository of cases, I found over 300 complaints over the past 12 or 18 months 
that were exactly on the same issue, on the exact same provider, on the exact same issue involving getting diabetic testing supplies that people didn't ask for. And in nearly all of those cases, the agent that vetted that case closed it as being unfounded for lack of credible allegation or lack of information or something along those lines. And I got five or eight complaints that were all the same. There wasn't a ton of information, but 300 people that are all saying the same thing can't be wrong, right? They all can't be wrong when it's all in the same vein. So from that investigative perspective, like we could talk about, you know, the analytics failing and, and you know, $2 billion. And one thing I want to share with you guys is that in one of the articles, <clears throat> it shows this spike from this Washington Post article where it's showing, you know, in late 22, we're talking about $45 million for these seven companies. And by Q4 of 2023, it's almost 900 you know, $900 million. So we're talking about like an unbelievably, you know, large spike. But from an investigator's perspective, like how do people, you know, how do you miss this? And how do you not think about this if the complaints are even coming in? Yeah, let, let's kind of put this into context here. You know, healthcare fraud analysis and being able to forecast fraud and being able to have the predictive analytics in place is very difficult. There's so many variables. You look at a, a, a you know a credit card fraud. You get calls from the bank all the time. Suspicious activity, right? I mean, one one suspicious activity. They're calling you because it's simpler. They, they have your profiles. They have your spending thing, your spending history, and something doesn't look right. They call you, and and they do it while the payment is pending. Here. There's so many variables, so many people, so many providers that that type of predictive analytics is very difficult to mirror. So that's that's part of it. The other part is, you know, going back to the EOBs, you're right. The Medicare beneficiaries should be the first line of defense. But what's the one thing that's very clear on an EOB? This is not a bill. As soon as they see that, bye-bye. Yeah. It's gone, right? So when you saw those complaints that came in on the on the uh, on the what was it the diabetes kits, I bet a lot of those complaints were, I keep getting these shipments. I don't know what the hell to do with them. They're 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 filling up my house. They won't come. They won't. I keep calling the company. They won't come pick them up. I just need to get rid of this stuff. Here, these beneficiaries didn't get anything, so they're not right. paying attention to the EOB, and they're not getting any equipment. So there's nothing to complain about. So that's why on the front end, it went on, you know, undisclosed. Now, let, let's look at, you know, what what Medicare's history is with with DME. It's always been an area of substantial vulnerability ever. And you talked about wheelchairs. You can go down the litany of equipment that has come out that was cutting edge that regulations hadn't been passed yet, policies weren't catching up, guidelines hadn't been catching up, and those became areas of vulnerability. Wheelchairs, mattress pads, lymphedema pumps, TENS units, you can just keep going and going and going. To such an impact that Medicare created special contractors to, to be the guardrails for DME. There's, there's a specific DME enrollment contractor that is supposed to go and enroll all the contractors, do on-sites, 
do inventory checks, make sure that they're in line with the supplier standards. There are four DME Max that all they do is process DME claims and they are geographically based, eight regions A, B, C, and D. And I think these companies, I think are in each one of them, if I'm not mistaken. And then there's the PDAC, which is a national contract to just look at DME data to look for spikes, to look for you know equipment that is coming that is coming onto the market and getting approved and what's the billing for that and is there a spike in something and then alert others to those things. But somehow, and, and that's in addition to the regular, you know, UPICs and Max and OIG and, and all those other things that are supposed to be there to protect the program. But somehow, because of whether it's negligence I don't I don't I don't think it is but I think it's a lot of has to do with CMS's attitude of pay first and then chase in a lot of things they their their number one priority is to make sure the providers are happy and combine that with the complexities of the program the the you know seven companies four DME max you can see how this can get you know undetected for so long and so, right. you know, as an investigator, you know, this seems like a pretty easy case. It's a service not rendered in a mammoth amount and going out and doing, you know, Benny interviews would be the first step. And then going, as, as Wade talked about earlier before we met, you know, going on site. Do these companies even have an inventory or, or is it just completely, you know, they somehow got these beneficiaries names and numbers maybe from the companies they bought. And they just started churning out these bills with absolutely no intention of having any overhead of buying right. the, the equipment or or delivering it and just making pure profit. Right. Well, you know, the interesting thing is that you're right. The very first thing is that when a Medicare beneficiary and oftentimes plan members in the commercial space, when they get those explanation of benefits, the EOBs or in the Medicare world, they call it the explanation of Medicare benefits, EOMB, it says, right, this is not a bill. And if you're already engaged in nefarious activity, you're not sending a bill for a copay or anything like that, right? Uh, you know, the thing that that hits me is that when you think about this and you see that this was spread out over seven companies and a number of states by kind of it's almost like you're sprinkling the scheme around to create an environment where you're going to tamp down that spike, right? That that can exist. You know, I think a little bit of this is also, you know, when I was working on compounding fraud cases, the lidocaine cane schemes, and then this diabetic testing case, when I would go and speak to beneficiaries, and I would say, well, didn't you think it was odd that you suddenly got this package in the mail that contained X, Y, and Z with a doctor's name that you didn't recognize? The number of people that I interviewed who said to me, I thought that this was coming from a doctor that worked with my doctor. Like my doctor is an internal medicine doctor. I thought that when I got this lidocaine, you know, I had been complaining about knee pain. I thought that my doctor consulted with a doctor who did knee surgery or whatever the story was. So a lot of these beneficiaries kind of create this narrative in their head where they're saying, I don't really need this. 
you know, the one that kind of resonated to me was there was one beneficiary who was on a it was on a mail order pharmacy case where the the beneficiary goes into his bathroom and he brings out a basket with like a thousand tubes or like literally hundreds of tubes of lidocaine. He was getting seven or ten tubes of this a month and then showed me a bottle of a liquid um, migraine medication. And it had his daughter's name on it. And I said to him, why do you have this with your daughter's name? And he said, oh, when I was when I was on the phone with my teledoc, which was really a representative from the company, they asked me if any members of my family had any other you know medical problems. And he said, oh, yeah, my my daughter, um, my daughter suffers from migraines and the prescription bottle had the daughter's name on it. But Medicare paid for it. The uh, Part D plan paid for it. So they build it out under the because he actually had the EOMB and I went back and I pulled the Part D billings for the man and his wife. And sure enough, there was a prescription for this liquid migraine medication, and it was billed on the day that was on the label of the bottle. So, you know, these kind of things, people don't necessarily put the two and two together when they're older or don't really think about it. But, you know, and then the other piece that you put together before I go to Jason is the whole premise of the contractors that are supposed to go out and do these on-sites. And the inherent problem with that is that these on-sites are, are based upon in the DME space, whether or not a provider is identified as a low, medium, or high risk, right? And there's a whole algorithm for that. But number one, when those inspectors go out, it's a mechanical process. It's not an investigative process. The inspector goes out, asks a question on a form, writes the answer, and moves on to the next question. If every single answer on that question is a lie, the inspector that's there for the on-site has no ability to ask follow-up questions, make a greater interrogation or anything. They literally ask a question, get a response, document it, and move on. The other piece of that is that there is no admonishment that the inspector gives or on the, sig on the signature block on the form. And the signature block, by the way, is not an attestation. It's an acknowledgement that you were there during the inspection. There is no attestation or admonishment that providing a false or misleading statement could be a violation of federal law uh, you know, under 18 U.S.C. 1001 and 18 U.S.C. 1035 or any of the myriad of statutes that relate back to the false um, in pr provision of information. And uh, I actually wrote when I was an OIG agent, I discovered this and I actually wrote memos regarding this to CMS in which you know nothing ever happened. And I'd always said at the minimum, if someone is lying to someone who's in a quasi-governmental position, there should be an admonishment about it. So, you know, it, it's a combination of things, right? It's a combination of patients don't look at their information. In this case, I think the data analytics might have not brought this to the rise because DME is costly in general. And so, you know, but obviously for us, we look at this and we say, hey, how is it that Pretty in Pink, which is a company that only provided for years wigs and um, post mastectomy um, prostheses, are able to be able to suddenly are billing out, you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on these things? And how is that, you know, like how is that a thing, right? So, Jason, I want to go to you for the last piece of this, which is, you know, from a process perspective, if you're in the SIU, if you're in the OIG, there's a lot of money that is spent on data analytics proactively. There is a lot of money spent on vetting. There's a lot of money that's spent on making decisions. 
where in knowing what we now believe, you know, let's say these facts are true, right? We have no reason to believe they're not true or what have you. Where in the process could there have been improvements to, to capture some of these issues earlier on? Well, of course, you know, there are the three primary components of, uh, of an SIU would be data, uh, investigations and or audit and then uh, medical review. So in the data world, and you know, I think Wade covered it really well, uh, probably some of the most uh, basic analyses that can be done are spike analyses. So, you know, setting parameters of, you know, what should trigger an alert, it, you know, can be done and should be done. And then there should be regular meetings and our discussions with the data group to see what's going on in your world. Now, what complicates this, of course, is that the it, you know the uh, the market has expanded so greatly, right? Like in my time in the you know late seventies, early eighties, uh, you know it, it, the the market was not so national in nature. Usually, it was pretty localized. Where now, you know, getting that data for uh, a lot of SIUs is more complicated, but you know CMS, I, I believe, is still um, aspirational about having uh, an approach of one PI, one program integrity. So you know we've seen a consolidate a consolidation of those types of resources over the years, right? You know there would before there were you know again in, in the early days uh, there were some 62 payers. Uh, and each payer had no idea what the other payer was paying. And now we have things like the Healthcare Fraud Prevention Partnership. We have, um, you know, more consolidated approach to, to, um, uh, to the resources of program integrity, but it's still not where it needs to be. Um, and I don't want to trivialize this, but it still just never ceases to amaze me that you can get some of your best new investigative ideas by watching late night TV. I mean, you know, catheter commercials, scooters, uh, diabetic test strips. It's just amazing. It's all sitting right in front of us. And then, you know, did we sit around and strategize about what is the best way to use our resources? Now, I guess my hope is that CMS and I, I believe that they will do this, frankly, from what I've seen in my uh, UPIC and MIC experience, is that they're going to do a, a root cause of this to see, well, you know, what can they do to do better? And, you know, how to, um, you know, better uh, identify these without it becoming uh, billion with a B cases. And so while I agree that the, you know, when you when you break these providers up across however many states you're breaking them up, that the cream won't necessarily rise to the top. I do think it's a little odd that the that the one DME company, Pretty in Pink, which had a really, really limited number of items that they provided. And by the way, the owner of that company indicated in a newspaper article that she sold the company last year for $50,000. So that should give you a little bit of a clue that if you're selling your company for $50,000, we don't know what their, what their Medicare billings were, right? But if you're selling your company for 50 grand, you're not a million dollar company, 
you're not a $3 million company. You're selling it for rock bottom. Even if you're looking to get out of the industry, you don't have a fire sale on a profitable company. So the fact that the company sold for $50,000 to me is indicia of that they're a pretty low level uh, reimbursed company. And now they're suddenly now they're carrying a product that they never carried before. And so even if you were to say, hey, in the individual instances, these companies may not rise to the top, but sort of in the aggregate, you know, a $2 billion cost in catheters, you know, that, that in the aggregate, these things kind of come to the come to the to the tip. I mean, that's where we've seen a lot of these issues in some of these cases. We've seen it with the um, with the amniotic fluid cases, right, with the um, with the patches and, and things of that sort. Um, we've seen it with uh, with some of the stimulators that are out there. We're seeing it with acupuncture and, and things of that sort. So some of these schemes that are out there, um, they, you know, they, they rise to the top in the aggregate. And so, you know, when seven companies kind of sprinkle it uh, across their different business lines, you have to wonder, like, how did this not get caught? The other piece of this, going back to you, Wade, is, that, you know, if you read some of these articles, some of these phone numbers were coming back to, you know, God knows what. Some of the addresses were coming back to God knows what. Part of what these, you know, these systems are supposed to do is supposed to be able to identify these things. So I think that there's, you know, certainly, Jason, from from your perspective, this root cause analysis of finding out like where this went. For me, the biggest thing is all of this money is spent in in the world of the government, the SIU, CMS, what have you, to help to prevent these kinds of things from happening. And it all was brought to fruition by an organization whose providers were pissed off and mad about the fact that their names were being thrown out for things that they had no involvement with. So, you know, it's it it does show that there is at least some hope that the healthcare community is looking to go on that right path. But, you know, I think that, you know, what's going to wind up happening is for, for our SIU people that are watching this, you got to start looking at this data because while catheters are a huge Medicare line of business, they also have a huge uh, implication in the Medicaid space and the commercial space. So I think this is opening up a, a can of worms that we're going to be really looking at over the next few months. It's going to be interesting to see where this goes. Nobody's commenting from any of the organizations and the government about this, and it's fine. They shouldn't be. If there's an open investigation, you don't want to tip the hat too much. But this is this is going to be an amazing thing to see what happens, because I think this is going to be one of those things that's going to be um, uh, relative to what we were seeing with um, with the braces from Operation Brace Yourself, you know, maybe this is Operation Catch Your Urine or something, um, because there's going to be what I think is going to be a similar set of investigations that result in some some things that go on with these boiler room operations involving um, uh, these telemed uh, issues that are out there. So stay tuned, keep an eye on it, see what's happening, you know, read your, read your press releases, keep up with, with these kind of things and you'll see. So as always, interesting stuff. I thank everybody for tuning in. As always, again, sign up for our newsletter. Hello at advisehealth.com. You can get a newsletter every week in your inbox on Friday afternoons with all of our uh, LinkedIn live recordings that have been uh, already deployed, all of our weekly OIG roundtables. Um, and stay tuned for next week, uh, LinkedIn Live. Um, I'm actually going to be um, hosting one of our SIU investigators who's amazing with data and data analytics. We're going to be talking about lead generation. We're going to be talking about the importance of vetting data. Um, he's got some really good tips, hints, and tricks 
that will be uh, part of that presentation. So it's going to be it's really going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. Um, as always, we appreciate the time that you spend listening to our podcast and joining us again. You can get our uh, other podcasts on our YouTube channel. Uh, we are going to be doing a website refresh and all of our podcasts will be uh, right there embedded within our uh, within our web page. So keep your eyes open for that. So as always, I thank everybody for tuning in and we'll see you next week on the next OIG Roundtable.